0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I am your host. Today I have the joy of welcoming into our mobile studio on location in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, the Minister of Global Outreach at 10th Presbyterian Church, Dr. Bruce McDowell. Bruce, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So, Bruce has been, or Dr. McDowell, I should say, has been the Minister of Global Outreach down at 10th since 1982. He holds degrees from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and also the American University of Biblical Studies. He has taught classes as an adjunct faculty member at Westminster and Glenside, and in a variety of seminaries and in conferences overseas in his capacity as the outreach minister at 10th. He's the author of several books on a variety of themes, missions, evangelism, covenant theology, and two of these books we're going to discuss today because they were published earlier this year. The two are Faith in the Mosaic, Finding a Biblical Focus in a Pluralistic World, and then Christian Baptism, The Sign and Seal of God's Covenant Promise. Like I said, both were published this summer, one in June and one in July, I believe, and um, I'm just very impressed with them and, and glad for this opportunity. But Dr. McDowell, my first question, we're going to tackle Faith in the Mosaic first, um, but but before I do that, I did want to ask, how did, how did both book projects come to fruition right around the same time? What was that like, and, and, and what, what conditions in your life allowed that to happen?
1: Well, it, yes, it was a busy time trying to work on both of them. Uh, <laughs> it so happened that I had already um been working for some years on the Christian baptism book and so it was well along uh and towards completion uh but then I got asked by the publisher uh, CLC publications uh the um, director of that uh ministry to uh consider writing a book for them and presenting a proposal so I also had a book idea prepared um, that over some previous years I had gradually been compiling some stuff for this uh, project and so I presented that. They accepted it and wanted uh, it done within a certain timeline so I made that a priority to work on finishing uh, the Faith in the Mosaic Finding a Biblical Focus in a Pluralistic World uh, book and That uh, was a fun project uh, that uh, involved me uh, doing some more research, but the majority of it was work I had already uh, previously done. Uh, So I just needed to do more editing and a little more uh, putting the chapters together with more of a a theme. Uh, So uh, then the baptism book... uh, Came after I finished the other one, and I uh, was able to just uh, do a lot more research. uh, Right, rushed at that time. I, I, I get some study leave time from my job and. So and then in evenings and stuff I would be working on it. Very
0: good. Well I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you've produced both of them. I think they're valuable resources to the church and, and we're gonna get into that. So you said that CLC had invited you to submit a book project that was the immediate impetus for faith in the mosaic, but what were some of the big picture social triggers that prompted your interest in, in writing this book and tackling this project?
1: One is that we see our society has been changing, uh, where we see uh, a lot more uh, both interest as well as uh, just seeing around us in our environment m- multiple religions and worldviews. So, Christians don't seem to be prepared on how to address them, how to think about them, how to respond to these different worldviews. And so I thought uh, a resource to help them deal with that would be appropriate uh, at this time. And there's uh, so many religious uh, religions represented by all the immigration from around the world that uh, we need to pre- be prepared how to address that. We also, in the broader context of you know, the majority culture in our country, uh, we see a shift ha- uh, happening as well so that um, there's an interest in spirituality, but Uh, It's not necessarily Christian spirituality. It's with uh, oftentimes coming from an Eastern worldview, a monistic worldview where all is one rather than dualism of a creator God and his creation.
0: Uh, And that's a big distinction. And you sound a lot like uh, Cornelius Van Til when you start talking about the creator-creature distinction and and the monistic versus dualist or twoist view, which you get into the book, uh, reminds me of Dr. Peter Jones. Were these some of the influences in in shaping your own response to these trends? Definitely, they were, yes. Uh, And Peter Jones particularly... uh,
1: it does a, a wonderful job of addressing the issue of these distinction between the uh, t- uh, twoist and oneist worldviews uh,
0: and I
1: found his writing
0: invaluable very good and we just I, I just saw dr. Jones at the Quakertown conference on Reform theology this past weekend um, for our listeners that you know, we're not doing this live, you're listening to the recording, but that was um, November 17th and 18th in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, and, um, and you know he was, he was singing his, his usual song. He was talking about this very subject. Now, early on in the book, you identify the American brand of religious pluralism as post-secular. And you say that there's a secular cultural and intellectual elite over a thoroughly and even growing spiritual general populace. And I think it would be pretty difficult to deny the reality of that characterization of things. We see in our media and our politics and in academia a, a very secular presentation of, of human life and what makes life good for those who live it. But we have on the ground our, our people in our neighborhoods um, all if not identifying with a particular religion at least um, singing uh, the praises of spirituality and, and seeing that as a core part of human experience but you go on to describe two kinds of pluralism one is militant and then one when the other is true pluralism what's the difference between these two kinds of pluralism as you've presented them in the book
1: So uh, the militant form of pluralism is really an ideology in itself. Uh, It's a worldview that really undertakes uh, relativism as a a standard uh, so that there's no fixed truth, uh, and you need to be open to all views but as long as it's consistent with their own pluralistic view so if you don't agree with them on their pluralism uh therefore you're not in- included or invited to be part of the discussion uh you're you're uh, seen as uh, anathema <laughs> and uh so christians because uh we as conservative Christians, at least, uh, believe that there's one way of salvation and there's only one true God and way of under- knowing him. Uh, therefore, we are seen as some kind of uh, strange animal, <laughs> you know, some, you know, uh, apparent uh, uh, view that is not really acceptable. Uh, and so, That makes it uh, difficult to interact with people who uh, hold to a militant view, whereas a a real pluralistic view is where everybody's invited to the table to present their views and accept it for what they believe uh, and without trying to conform them to someone else's view. Uh, So if you're inviting a Hindu or a Muslim and a a Christian uh, to a discussion you accept their views just for what they present and believe to be their
0: views, without trying to uh, say you have to fit into a certain mold. And and this is nothing really that new for Christians. If we look at history in 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 Greece, On, in Acts 17, Paul's invited to share his views, and he's evaluated on the basis of what he professes to believe, whereas later on in the early centuries of the church, Roman authorities said they they accepted a wide range, a very broad range of religious views within the empire, but Christianity was targeted as being unacceptable because of its exclusive truth claims. Is that a fair characterization, maybe a bit anachronistic, but is that at least fair?
1: Sure. Paul was bold to share what uh, the Christian faith stood for, yet he contextualized his message to his audience so that he was able to uh, speak to the audience from their background, quoting their Greek authors, uh, and speaking about the blessings that come from a creator, God, uh, who brings uh, rain on the just and the unjust, Uh, but... Uh, brings us all blessing we ought to acknowledge him and that he places us to where we live each one and has a plan for our life uh and therefore we ought to acknowledge him and thank him and but then where at the point where he speaks about Jesus and his resurrection is similar to today, when you speak about the miraculous and the uniqueness of Christ, uh, that's where some will believe who are called, and some will not and will reject that message.
0: This is fresh in my mind because I'm reading through Acts in my daily devotions, and I just got to the the point um, a little bit after the, uh, the the Mars Hill discourse, and I got to the point where is it uh is it festus or or felix it says paul you're beside yourself right you're idiomatic you're out of your mind you're you're crazy uh when paul starts getting into the resurrection and uh and paul's response is is good i'll leave that to our listeners to to go and revisit on their own time now overall i want to we're going to get into some more details about the book but before we do what is the main point of truth or application in this book, what do you want your readers to take away and or to put into practice as, as believers living in a pluralistic world?
1: I'd say uh, one of the major thrusts of the book is to have uh, a full confidence in God's revelation, the Word of God, and understanding the role of general revelation but how that's not sufficient and we need God's special revelation, which is in God's Word, the Bible. And <laughs> And then how that compares with other religions and worldviews, as well as the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and why he came and what he's accomplished for us uh, compared to other prophets and religious leaders who um, did not – say they were the way, the truth, and the life in the way that Jesus did and proved it by his uh, death for us and then resurrection from the dead and is still alive today and active in our lives. Uh, And so uh, I help the reader to see how Jesus is the only way to salvation uh, in this world where pluralism is so emphasized that to, to proclaim that there's only one way to salvation is uh, seen as uh, very strange and uh, largely rejected. Uh, and then how to uh, deal with common questions that come up uh, or objections to the Christian faith. And so I I go through a series of those to address them for the reader.
0: And so your main audience is, though, as I was looking through the book and reading it, I noticed This would certainly be well-received by, for lack of a better way of putting it, an open-minded unbeliever, someone who's exploring Christianity. But your main audience are really Christians who are wondering, how do I interact with my, not just now, my Jewish neighbor, but my Jewish neighbor and the Hindu one down the street, the Buddhist one on the other block. Um, Well, we're in a perfect place to be talking like this. We're in Upper Darby, (laughs) where I grew up, where... You know, no two houses have the same creed or, or 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 national origin or anything. I mean, this is so diverse here. Uh, but is that fair? Is your main audience Christians who are or trying to navigate these waters? It is. Uh, in
1: fact, uh, my publisher wanted me to make that clear who my audience was. Uh, so it is for Christians to help encourage their faith and how to respond to their non-Christian neighbors and colleagues. But I think it could be useful for uh, a non-Christian to read as well who uh, wants to consider the Christian faith, so there's an apologetic aspect to the book.
0: Yeah, I picked up on that, and and we're going to discuss that as we look at some of the details and give our listeners a taste of, of what they could expect if they pick it up themselves, which I recommend they do. On pages 46 and 47, this really stuck out to me. You describe the mindset of those advocating so-called religious pluralism. And this comes on the heels of a discussion of the individualistic nature of American spirituality, post-Christian, post-secular spirituality, and a spirituality that David Wells observes, and you quote him, "...makes no truth claims and seeks no universal significance." That's that's like a hopeless spirituality. But this paragraph then that follows that stuck out to me, and I want to dig a little deeper with you while I have you here. Those advocating religious pluralism who are well-meaning but have a patronizing defective mindset think we are all really saying the same thing. They suppress or evade deep-seated differences between faiths in order to develop a theory that accounts for some commonalities, To do justice to world religions, they need to be seen through the eyes of their adherents rather than through homogenizing tendencies of scholars seeking to develop artificially constructed versions. Their attempt to bring unity introduces distortions to each faith, including a redefinition of God. Then you continue on a little bit later. Deliberate suppression of differences in order to achieve harmony does not bring true understanding. I just loved that paragraph. I, I, I was nodding as I was reading it, thinking about my experience at Temple University. What are some examples of this academic flattening out of differences and distortion of religious distinctives?
1: Oh, one of the popular writers in this area is uh, John Hick, uh, and another is Paul Knitter, uh, who's Roman Catholic theologian. And they uh, they try to bring a harmonizing to religion, uh, and discount the significant differences that exist between them, and try to emphasize uh, the universal commonalities like love and justice and uh,
0: things that. Virtually everybody around the world would accept in some way, shape, or form right in a, in a non nuanced way we could say they, they accept love and justice yeah right and and so they uh, John
1: Hick tries to come up with a definition of God that has some biblical aspects to it, but uh, it really is redefining God in a way that 's unbiblical. Um, one part of the problem is that these other rel- non Christian religions uh, either have a very different view of God or a non existent uh, God, or uh, God is uh, in everything, like in Hinduism, and w- including ourselves, we're part of that oneness of God. Uh, and so there's not a clear clear view of who god is and how we can know him um and so uh i see uh, that as problematic and um in um knitter's book uh on uh, uh let see uh no um one only one way uh trying to remember the title uh, of his book, but he, he says uh, basically what he's advocating uh, is this question, does being saved require a faith in Jesus, the historical person, or rather is it only important that a person live according to his teachings? Um, in other words, uh, just living a good life in his view, uh, would be sufficient uh, if you're doing good works, uh, basically following the moral teaching of Jesus. It's not necessary to actually live and believe and follow the historical Jesus.
0: So that this would be like an example of this would be, let's say, a sincere, pious, and and even a, a, a you know a sincere, pious, and peaceful Muslim just seeking to to practice his religion and do good to others right being faithful in the zakat and being altruistic being faithful in the salat and, and praying to Allah the one God and, and and recognizing that he must submit to God and 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 by default bearing some resemblance to what Christ would teach of being humble and submissive and and, and generous with others this guy, in, in Knitter's scheme could feasibly get to heaven without ever confessing Christ and even even confessing a false Christ? Is that just because his life bears the marks of, of, of common goodness?
1: That's exactly right. In fact, you wouldn't really have to even believe in God uh, according to... Um, uh, post-second Vatican Council Roman Catholic theology uh, so that if you are living a good life, you can be saved uh, just because of your good works. Uh, And uh, so they believe in universalism, basically. And works righteousness. (laughs) And works righteousness, exactly. Uh, So understanding the mercy of God by His grace alone, uh, that it's not according to our works, is, is something that uh, is contrary to um, their teaching and understanding of truth. Uh, and the gospel is very clear that we're saved apart from any effort or work on our own, uh, but it's truly by God's mercy through Jesus Christ.
0: And you know, one of the great benefits of Vatican II, though there's much that we would bemoan even as a, as a degrading of traditional Roman Catholicism in various areas, but one of the great benefits of it is it shows us, in some ways, the logical and historical conclusion of works righteousness, which which is, you know, part and parcel in the warp and woof of Roman Catholicism, and this is what it gives birth to, is a functional universalism and and, uh, and flattening out of any kind of difference and suppression of, of doctrinal, of the importance of doctrine, ironically. So therefore
1: the Pope will meet with these religious leaders uh, like the head of, uh, you know, the, the Dalai Lama or, and, or Islamic leaders uh, and so on because he sees them as uh, really re- truly Religious leaders that ought to be respected for their faith viewpoints uh, that can be honored by Christians as well, and because they're going to be in heaven with us anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way the way at least the current pope uh, is acting, and and I think previous popes as well, in relation to these these other spiritual leaders, so to speak, is. Treating them as brothers in arms, comrades in arms. I mean, we're all we're all seeking to do the same thing. We're all working for world peace. If there's anyone who can bring world peace, it's the Dalai Lama in the East or the Pope in the West. And uh, at least those are common slogans. Now, this is a this is a provocative question. Perhaps can can Christian apologists and and even evangelists fall into the same trap that of flattening out differences? between competing faiths? And if they can, how do we avoid doing that without slipping into confusion ourselves?
1: There are probably some apologists that tend uh, towards that kind of thing, but I, my position is that we have to be uh, stand on the uniqueness of the Christian message that we find in the Bible. Uh, and so the Bible is very clear uh, that there's a uniqueness to jesus as the savior of humanity uh for those who will heed the call that God gives them and that comes through the work of the holy spirit as the spirit applies the word of god the message that is preached or heard uh and this uh is necessary because uh, a part From the gospel, we are dead in sin. We have no hope and we're separated from the covenants of God. And we have no ability to respond to even the message apart from the Holy Spirit working in us to bring, uh, apply the word of God, the message of hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation.
0: You know, something I I really appreciate in your book that you emphasize is that. Competing religions or or truth claims, e- even even so-called non-spiritual secularist claims, they they all attack the authority of Scripture and the unique person of Christ Jesus. This reminded me of one of our professors' books, Doctor Jim McGoldrick's book, Christianity and Its Competitors: Ancient Heresies and Their Modern Counterparts. Or and he goes through and, and identifies. Cults and ancient heresies and things, and, and his two main themes are they compromise first and foremost on sola scriptura and solus Christus on the sufficiency of Scripture and the person of Christ. And you do that in this book, yes. and and you see it in some of the chapter headings. In um, in chapter two, the title is the authority of the Bible among multiple revelations, and Dr. McDowell gets into Solo scriptura without. I don't think ever using that particular phrase. And then in chapters three through five, they're all called the Lord. He is God. It's chapter three. Chapter four is the unique Christ in a pluralistic age. Then chapter five is no other name. Chapter six, then enter through the narrow door. You can just see over and over again, the emphasis on solus Christus, on the person, the unique person and, and work of Christ on our behalf. And and the, these chapters alone are worth the whole book, but later on in the book, just to give um, another an, another picture to our listeners, um, he has some very keen pastoral questions that you're going to want to see the answer to. He has chapter 7, can a loving God send good people to suffer an eternal hell? I mean, that's that's a question all of us get hit with whenever we're talking about the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. And, um, and then, you know, waging peace in a religiously violent age. That's a very provocatively titled chapter, but of course, militant atheists and secularists are always attacking religion as the cause of all the world's wars and conflicts and things. So Again, very pastorally sensitive and astute. Now, speaking of the pastoral considerations, we had talked a little bit about some of the big picture issues at play in the book. Was there anything going on in your church community down at 10th or or even in your, your evangelistic ministry and your outreach and your travels around the world that prompted you to embark on this project?
1: Well, our church is in Center City, Philadelphia, and it's in a very strong, active gay community uh, as well as... Uh, People from many different cultures and countries' uh, background uh, live in that area of the city. And so uh, we're, and also we have outreach from the church to international students, uh, to the local universities, and there's tens of thousands here. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, th- there's also a, a very uh, growing Muslim community in our city. Uh, and it's very evident around us. Uh, West Right. So I, I live a few blocks from two mosques.
0: Oh, yeah, I know exactly where you live then. So uh, uh, there's
1: also uh, Buddhist temples popping up. There's uh, you know, yoga classes that are not just an exercise stretching thing, but they're also uh, teaching or emphasizing its philosophy. Uh, and then there's... Uh, brand new more large mormon temple that has just been built in yeah. center city a
0: 50 million dollar project right there off the expressway isn't that right. what it was yeah so. the mayor was singing its praises mayor nutter a couple of years ago so uh and then there's
1: uh the usual
0: cults uh,
1: besides the mormons they have the jehovah's witnesses that uh are you're seeing at the bus stop and on the university campus and coming to my door every week you know and so uh you, we're encountered with all kinds of different uh, uh world views and religions uh so this uh book i'm hoping can be a resource for the reader to how to address uh this change in our society that we're seeing uh, where they need to be able to articulate their faith in a reasonable way for people to understand and be able to be a light for Christ.
0: And in a clear way, without any compromise as well. And I appreciated how you did both of those things in this book. Um, Philadelphia's a uniquely diverse city. It's always been spiritually diverse since its founding as a as a Quaker city. Um, tolerance was the old term. It's a little bit tolerance is a bit different than pluralism, but the seed of pluralism is contained in tolerance. And when the husk of tolerance falls off the the the, the tree of pluralism flourishes, so to speak, and and I have a chapter dealing with tolerance too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> good, good. Yeah, so. now, that's a theme that really needs to be fleshed out and care, and defined more and 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 more clearly in our culture. Because I think the way I hear tolerance used out there in the world, or and even in many quarters of the church, is not the way tolerance historically has been used in in society. But uh, so I, I appreciate that book. I commend it to our listeners. And there's a, there's a rich bibliography in the back of the book as well, where you can see some of the resources that Dr. McDowell was drawing from, and those would help you with further study into this topic of living faithfully as a Christian in a pluralistic society. And with that, I want to talk about the second book, which I found very helpful. And I'll be honest, I'll be completely honest, I was a bit skeptical when I think you send an email to the librarian and said, I just wrote a book called Christian Baptism. I said, another book? on christian baptism from a pedo-baptist perspective what could this possibly offer but as i was going through it um and we were talking about this a little bit earlier over coffee i was impressed with how many questions you ask that typically aren't asked or answered or addressed in other short treatments on on baptism now in the in the beginning of the book and the full title again is christian baptism the sign and seal of god's covenant promise beginning of the book you mentioned Pierre Marcel's book, The Biblical Doctrine of Infant Baptism, Sacrament of the Covenant of Grace. Pierre Marcel is uh, one of Dr. Piper's favorite French, uh, French Reformed pastors, preachers, and theologians. He references his book on preaching and assigns it to us to read. But you mentioned that he, that book, had a profound influence on you as a seminary student, I guess a Gordon Conwell, who was working through the question of who can receive the sacrament. Of baptism, and there are other great books out there—short treatments like Murray's, longer treatments as well—that tackle the debate head-on from a variety of perspectives. So, why why would you write this book? Put differently, what is it about the current theological landscape in our American church that led you to write this volume, and how do you seek to address those problems?
1: One of my purposes was uh, as um, a young pastor in process of becoming a pastor. Uh, I didn't, I was reading on this subject and looking for resources, and especially back at that time, I had trouble finding many good resources available uh, uh, that addressed questions that a credo Baptist has, and that was my background, having grown up Southern Baptist. Uh, And... There were a lot of questions, objections uh, that I didn't find addressed in uh, some of, especially some of the briefer treatments and even some that were more extensive. And so I thought, well, how about if I write to try to bring um, all of these questions together in one volume? Uh, I found uh, over time uh, a number of the questions and issues addressed, but they're scattered in many different resources, but not all brought together. Uh, And I was trying to bring it all together. Uh, And uh, there are many um, pastoral issues that I also found not addressed uh, and missiological issues related to baptism. So I was uh, addressing this in my book as well.
0: And that's what I found as I was skimming this book and uh, and giving a close reading to some of the chapters that 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 just drew me in a bit more. Now, there are a handful of big hermeneutical questions, of course, that need to be addressed when we discuss the practical questions that inevitably come up when we're talking about baptism like the proper recipients of baptism and and the mode or modes of baptism. Can you walk us through some of the foundational hermeneutical issues that you address in the book, like how we read and apply Scripture and how we understand the continuity or discontinuity between Old and New Testaments and even some of our confessional uh, language and resources to to guide us in these tasks?
1: I found that um, to adequately understand the Scripture as a whole, you need to Understand the covenants of god and uh so I take a covenantal perspective uh on and see how uh God uh started with a covenant with adam and uh then a uh, covenant of works and And then how with Adam's fall, there's a covenant of grace and how God uh, made a series of covenants. uh, But uh, there's essentially one eternal covenant uh, for our salvation and especially uh, revealed uh, to Abraham. And then a sign uh, of that covenant was circumcision. And in circumcision, we see essentially all of the same meaning as our baptism has, except for the aspect of the filling with the Holy Spirit, uh, which uh, came with the New Covenant. Uh, and But there's a sign of... Baptism that uh, indicates our cleansing from sin and having a new heart. uh, And you see uh, having a heart that's right with God is uh, also in the Old Testament. Uh, And I have uh, in the book a number of little charts of comparison uh, that I think the reader will find useful to see how uh, uh, in one of those charts I compare the... uh, sign of circumcision with baptism and see how the various scripture passages that compare show the similarities.
0: Mm-hmm. And and do you deal as well with um, that line? Not So in the confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about multiple administrations of one covenant of grace, right? But it also talks about how we read scripture, employing good and necessary inference or or concept. Yeah, uh,
1: so uh, although the Bible does not give us uh, explicit examples of children being baptized uh, or um, even the mode of baptism, uh, we find that uh, there is... Good and necessary consequence of why we baptize infants and the mode, uh, a mode of sprinkling or pouring as being a uh, uh, scriptural based reason for uh, why we do it that way. Uh, so, uh, the uh, whole concept of household uh, is discussed and about the blessing of children. Uh, by Jesus uh, and uh, how it's a covenantal blessing and uh, so these uh, in in the fact that uh, children of at least one Christian parent uh, are considered holy uh, and so they're part of the covenant family uh, and how the blessing of uh, the promises of God, as you see in Acts 2.39, are to us and to our children. Uh, and so uh, these are some of the reasons that we advocate children being blessed with the covenantal sign, uh, just as circumcision was given to children. And there is no reason given in Scripture for making a change from the Old Testament pattern to the New Testament for uh, including children in the covenant.
0: What, what I greatly appreciate, or you know, one little detail, or might seem like a little detail, but it's a big detail to a father who has daughters, is that in the new covenant, the sign of, of membership in the covenant community is extended not merely to men, but also to women. And so when my daughters were born, I knew I was going to baptize them. And and, and they were going to receive that gift of, of the sign and seal into the covenant community. Whereas in the old covenant, it was limited to men because, you know, they're the only recipients possibly of circumcision.
1: So in the new covenant, we see an expansion of the privileges of the covenantal signs. And in Acts 8, and Philip is baptizing, we see explicitly stated that women were also baptized.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so in, in chapter 8 of this book, it's a little bit later on in the book, you go into some crucial pastoral issues of application from what comes earlier in the book. And you write at the beginning of that chapter on page 169, because there is only, quote, one baptism, end quote, there can only be either an invalid baptism or a valid baptism, but not a rebaptism. However, many pastoral questions arise which are not addressed in the usual teaching about baptism. And so if if you're willing right now, can you walk us through you you bring up nine big questions. Can you walk us through some of the some of these situations that you present as pastorally sensitive?
1: Well, one of them is uh Say an infant has been baptized, uh, but their parents are not really uh, Christians. They're not born-again believers. Uh, Can we accept the baptism of that child as having been a valid baptism? And I argue that if it was done in the triune name with water uh, and by uh, some minister in a church that uh, at least in official sense believes the gospel, uh, teaches uh, Trinitarian uh, Christian faith, uh, then it should be considered as a valid baptism. Uh, and at the time of someone's baptism, no one can judge the heart of any person as to whether the parents are believers or whether the minister administering the baptism is a believer Uh, So, even if uh, you have a situation where the one who administered the baptism apostatizes, uh, does that mean that the baptism was invalid? I would say no, uh, that it was still a valid baptism uh, as long as it was done in a proper way
0: and as a context of of being a Christian uh, baptism. Hmm. What about if you were baptized in a church that doesn't preach the gospel like the Roman Catholic Church?
1: My view is that even though there can be the proper outward form of baptism with water and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, it does not necessarily make that baptism valid if there's not the gospel uh, held to uh, as we understand the gospel to be in the Bible. Uh, that it's uh, through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, and not by our works. Uh, And I believe that the Council of Trent, that the gospel uh, being through faith alone, was denied, declared anathema uh, by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, And that has not changed since uh, those days. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church is going further away, uh, I believe, uh, in their doctrine uh, uh, so that there's really a teaching of universalism now. And so I don't think the church, even though there are some true believers within Roman Catholicism, uh, in an official way, their doctrine is not... Uh, Christian doctrine uh, and therefore uh, the traditions of men that they've added to their doctrine have led them away from the truth and so uh, my own position is that uh, those who've been baptized in a Roman Catholic Church ought to be rebaptized uh, as to but not really a rebaptism but to have a valid baptism uh, uh, because there's really only one baptism for Uh, Anybody,
0: and that same logic would apply to so-called baptisms from Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians or um, Oneness Pentecostalism or uh, oh, yeah, Witness Lee, Lord's Recovery Ministries. You name a few in here, and and I appreciate that as well. There was a here. This is a big question, especially down south. Backsliders rebaptized. I mean, down south, it seems like baptism is is a is a way, and actually, true up here too. Growing up, I had friends that did this. Baptism was a way of reaffirming your faith after you've gone through a season of waywardness.
1: Yeah, so I I don't see uh, baptism again after falling away in sin to uh, be valid uh, or necessary because. Our baptism is a one-time event, uh, and to reaffirm one's faith by baptism is having a misunderstanding of the meaning of baptism. And uh, from a Reformed perspective, baptism is really God's initiative and what God has promised to us and what we are claiming owning to as our uh, god's promise and we had hold to by faith um in a more arminian viewpoint uh it's more of baptism is seen as a declaration of our faith and of our uh initiative and in, uh coming to god uh And so I think that is part of the reasoning for that uh, distinction and the view. And also in backsliding, if one has truly been a believer before and falls into sin, that doesn't mean one has lost one's salvation. However, if one was not truly a believer when they were baptized, that does not invalidate the baptism that they had. In fact, once uh, they are coming to true faith, they're actually... Um, affirming the baptism that they had received. So the point at which one receives the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, is not dependent on when one has received baptism. So you can have received the Holy Spirit either before, during, or after one's baptism.
0: And one of the questions you bring up, and this is particularly sensitive with our Credo Baptist brothers who are putting a bit of a pinch when we show up at their churches uh, if we've been baptized as infants and then it's the week they're having the Lord's Supper. Uh, what, how do you navigate that issue of, of one true Christian group not recognizing um, the baptism of another true Christian group? Like when John MacArthur has R.C. Sproul at his church on Communion Sunday, how do we navigate this issue?
1: Yeah, that's quite a challenge, and it's not as much of a challenge for Reformed believers because we don't have a problem accepting uh, credo-baptism, but it is for credo-baptists and accepting uh, pedo-baptism because they don't believe that we've had a valid baptism, Um, so uh, there are some uh, credo-baptist churches where their pastoral uh, leadership uh, are flexible on this issue. I understand John Piper is one in that regard uh, who will accept uh, the baptism of uh baptist uh, to be able to receive communion. But uh, some... Others are strict in that issue, and so it creates division in church and Actually, one of my purposes in writing this book on baptism was to help bring greater unity uh, to believers to have a what I consider a uh, a true perspective on baptism that can bring us into greater unity. Uh, in this area,
0: greater unity among believers is always a good thing. There is one other question I want to highlight, and there's more besides in here. And this is um, the question of baptism by one who is not a minister. And the re- and this is this hits close to home for me because I have family members who have been baptized by non ordained uh, non ordained. Commissioned church workers, so to speak, in certain parachurch contexts, and also have been baptized by leaders in a non Presbyterian, non Reformed church. Who, if they were in a Presbyterian context, probably would have been brought in as ordained elders or something. Uh, but but are are merely part seen as part of the leadership team or core group of a, of a, just a broadly evangelical church. What do we do? with that with with baptism by someone who's not ordained as a minister
1: first uh i think i should address why do we believe that an ordained minister should uh, administer the sacraments including baptism and that is because we believe the bible teaches that the word the preached word goes together with the administration of the sacrament so the preached word gives significance meaning to the sacraments uh, and it's a spiritual matter of the holy spirit applying the significance of the word of god to our lives so that we receive it by faith so if the preached word should be done by someone who has been recognized by the church and prepared for that office uh and has been called and can preach uh, then those people should be the one that administer the sacraments because they are a visible form of the preached word uh, and however there are exceptions to this and in one sense There's a priesthood of all believers we see in scripture, and all of us are priests unto God and uh, serve the Lord, and Jesus is our high priest and mediator, Uh, and in one sense, all believers should be able to proclaim their faith, uh, but some are called in a special way to that task, Uh, and so, if somebody has been baptized by somebody who's not ordained minister, I would say it doesn't invalidate the baptism. They're still, if as long as it was done in the triune name with water uh, and received by faith, uh, then it's a true uh, baptism. Uh, but I would say it's just uh, an abnormal or not uh, the what should properly uh properly be done.
0: I have someone near and dear to me. My elders know who this person is because I've spoken with them about this person. Uh but uh this individual see I'm I'm hiding even the, the, the gender of the individual. This individual was baptized, quote unquote, by a female minister in the United Methodist Church as an infant, and then and by a sprinkling. And then dunked as a middle schooler in a, I think, a, by maybe a, a young life leader or something in, in conjunction with a, uh, an, an evangelical pastor. And then again in high school, again, was baptized by immersion uh, by an evangelical pastor. And I was speaking with the elders in my church about this, and they said, well, it sounds like at least one of them is legitimate. <laughs> And the argument I made, I said, you know, I don't know about the second two, but at least that first one I would rule out because even though the United Methodist Church at that point is a church that still publishes a true gospel and you'd find it preached in certain quarters, as sick, as as sick as doctrinally sick as the church is, I think that a, a woman is not one who could be understood to be lawfully ordained in a church. And um, I don't know. I've talked to some, some folks who are, thoroughly reformed who, who pushed back on that a little bit and said, well, I don't know, Zach, I think we got to consider this one way or other. But as far as baptism goes, again, you have a very extensive bibliography in the back of this book that itself is, is a valuable resource. But what, what books or, or what lectures, talks, sermons would you direct our listeners to um, that want to dig further into the issue of, of baptism?
1: uh well there's uh quite uh a few available today um uh one of them is leonard van der zee uh called christ baptism and the lord's supper uh another is from robert lethem um, a christian pocket guide to baptism the water that unites it's a small uh book um from Britain, and then Daniel Hyde has a small book called Jesus Loves the Little Children. Mm -hmm. Uh, That one particularly I found accessible uh, and uh,
0: a good resource uh, for the question of infant baptism. Danny Hyde is a uh, Westminster West grad, a minister in the URCNA and uh, a friend of Greenville Seminaries as well and, and our professors. He is a very clear writer and uh, and grounds much of his theological work in in the 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 work of the, the Puritans before us. And I think he he's one of the editors for the Meet the Puritans blog for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, works very closely with Dr. Ryan McGraw at our seminary and I, I always enjoy what, what Danny Hyde puts out there. So Um, I commend this book to our listeners, both books, very valuable, very useful, easy to read, but but not not shallow at all by any means. And certainly if you're a pastor, um, these books will be great resources to you in addressing some of those sensitive pastoral questions that we've mentioned. Dr. McDowell, I just thank you again for joining me here in Upper Darby in my hometown while I'm up here for a visit. Do you have any parting words for our listeners before I let you go?
1: I think uh, you'll find reading these books to be uh, challenging in some ways and encouraging and useful tools for your own ministry and uh, response to... uh, questions that you'll hear brought up uh on a regular basis Uh, so
0: thank you thank you again you've been listening to confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary you've been listening to a production of greenville presbyterian theological seminary for more information about the seminary please visit www.gpts.edu